All right, it's been a little while. Let's review real quick. So just say anything that was a part of sanctification or you think was a part of sanctification. Let's get our review going. What are ideas or concepts or words? Synergism. Synergism. What does that mean? Working together instead of monergism, which is only one working, right? Which that's how that's justification. It's monergistic. God does it all by himself. Sanctification is us participating, obviously, with the spirit of God, with the power that the spirit of God gives us. But yes, we are active in it. Yeah. What else? Christ likeness. The one word that describes the Christian life, Christ Likeness. I can't ever decide or remember if there's a hyphen between Christ and likeness or not, but we're calling it one word. What else? Works. Works. What about works? Good works. Good works. They play a role. That's what we're talking about is growing in those. Yeah. What else? Right, right. Identifying us as born again. Yeah. Yes, salvation is first. Salvation, we could say justification as well. Okay. Ordo salutis, what is that? That's just a fancy Spanish way to order your salad? It's an order of salvation. Ordo salutis. Ah, so it's not how to order a salud. The order of salvation, right, which... Where can we find that of... Uh, where can we find that in the, in the New Testament? There's a chapter and verse. Romans 8. Yep. Oh, lower. 16. I mean, I mean higher. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> I'm left-handed. It's Romans 8, um, I think 29. 29 or 30. It's right after 28. They're called the golden chain. <clears throat> now I got to know for sure. Romans 8, 20, 29. 29 and 30. All right, so I guess I was totally right. All right, okay. That's a good review. Now, here we are. We're in the last section of the discussion about sanctification in the um, 1689 Confession. <clears throat> now, let's... let's uh, what are we... So we're, we're trying to get to the truth of sanctification. And if... If the truth is a highway, a road, what are the ditches, for sanctification, what are the two ditches on each side of the road that we could fall in for sanctification? Legalism. Legalism is one. Antinomianism. Antinomianism. Okay. Legalism sounds a little more familiar to us. Antinomianism. Can you explain that, James? It's uh, resisting the law altogether. Right. So anti, we know, means against. Nam or namas is law. So anti-law, meaning that 
there's no law that we have to obey. Legalism meaning all we talk about is obeying laws. Each is a ditch on the straight and narrow of the truth. And usually a Christian or a church or a denomination, you can be, have a proclivity to one ditch or the other one. So let's identify some, some markers. Let's go with the easiest one first. For legalism, what, what, how would you describe legalism? Mm-hmm. You, you have to be this, you have to, you know, be in these boundaries. It's, um, I put entire sanctification there, but I'm not sure. Yeah, that. And then Christian perfection. But sanctification happens because we are not perfect yet. Yes, okay. If you were going to explain, you mean not just you, Penny, thank you. Um, explain legalism to a kid. How would you explain it in just like basic small, short terms. Man-made laws? Man-made laws. Because it, it's not legalistic to obey God's laws. It's legalistic to obey man-made laws. All right, so that's good. See, sometimes what legalism means is you take your faith more serious than me. So I'm calling you a legalist. It's just weaponizing the law, right? Yeah, that's, so man-made laws, we don't follow those. But is it legalistic to not have an affair and keep that commandment? No. Uh, you should not commit adultery? Of course not. We wouldn't say that. So man-made laws or thinking that I'm going to be saved by law, right? So I'm either going beyond God's law, that's one version of it, or I'm going to be saved by keeping the law, which cannot happen. All right, so that's what true legalism is. Now, antinomianism, is, it's a harder... <coughs> animal to identify and it seems like at least in the western world the church kind of just kind of swings back and forth the church at large the, the visible church people who would call themselves christians swing back and forth between one and the other you have eras where this is kind of the normal scene and then you have eras where this is more the normal scene i think that we're here in our era currently but how would, what would you identify as antinomianism, the opposite of legalism? What? Hypergrace. Hyper Explain that a little bit. Well, that some may even go so far as to say that we don't sin anymore uh, because uh, God's grace has already taken away our sins, past, present, and future, so that we actually don't sin any longer. Uh, and so... That whatever, we, you, whatever you would do that you would normally call sin is not actually sin? Right, yeah. Yeah, okay. It's like a rejection of the simul justus et peccator. Like, I'm no longer sinful and righteous. I'm just righteous. So yeah. no matter what I do, it doesn't matter because I'm saved. I've been redeemed. The Lord saved me from it, so my actions mm. have no consequences. Right, which is almost Gnosticism, right? Almost. That nothing that I do physically matters. Only the spirit, and if I'm spiritually, spirit, in my spirit, I'm united with God, then what I do with my body and, you know, my, my eyes, it doesn't really matter. So that, yeah, we fit in that. I actually had a, a, I was having a conversation with a guy at my old church one time, this older gentleman, he was like, uh, read in, in Matthew, where it says, be perfect as, as I am perfect. Yeah, Matthew five forty eight. He wouldn't command us to do anything that he didn't give us the power to do, so we are now perfect. Ooh. 
<laughs> that's, uh, that's why you need to have a class on hermeneutics. We'll do that one time. <laughs> uh, yeah, so hyper grace, what else does this look like? Isn't it like uh, Romans um, 6, 1, mm-hmm. you know, that grace, um, keep, keep on sinning so that grace will... Yeah, should I continue to sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, sure. No, he says, may it never be. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, so that's Romans 6, 1. It's a great reference for that. I see it as a crutch to discipline, kind of like an excuse. Crutch, so, like, I don't have to be disciplined because I'm not all about that law? Yeah, like, right, like, right. I don't the fruit, but you just call it's it like, like an excuse. It's like lazy Christianity? Yes. <laughs> Almost like the justification of sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so beyond like the we don't sin anymore, just like sin's not a big deal. Right. Sin, sin's no big deal. Well, and I think the, the other side of that coin is that God's wrath doesn't matter anymore. Right? Yeah. Yeah, this is where you would call, <coughs> the, this is where you would have that, the whole conversation that, not as popular anymore, but the fire insurance, oh, right? Wow. Where you're like, you just get saved. Hey, I'm going to heaven. Once saved, always saved. So we're good. Doesn't matter. You can't take it away. So we're good. I've seen sin now, pray later um, bumper stickers. Right. <laughs> Which is like super Catholic, yeah. Uh, yeah, so you see that? <coughs> right, right. So here's, here's what we got to get to in this. Let's ask this question. Is sanctification optional? No, but I, I do participate in it. So is it no or is it Yes. Or is it to an extent? No, and to an extent, yes. No, the act of sanctification is absolutely necessary. And uh, we, we work with the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit also works. Uh, so even, even on our bad days where we're not working towards it, the Holy Spirit is still working mm. on our behalf. So the act of the process of sanctification is, going, is ongoing, uh, even if we slip and fall or backslide for a season. Right. Philippians 1 would be a good verse for that, right? That the, the work he began in you, he is faithful to finish. He will bring it to completion. Right. Right. So then can you be saved, but yet unrepentant? No. Okay. Can you, could someone be born again, but never show, show signs of new life? No. No. Okay. So let's go to 2 Corinthians 5.17. This is all bonus for the uh, actual confession. You bargained. You showed up tonight. You got extra credit and extra content. St. Corinthians 5.17. This is a great verse worth memorizing if you are so inclined. If somebody's there, please read it for us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Okay. So if you're in Christ... What kind of creation are you? New. What happened to the old? Passed away. And what's there in its place? The new. So you have to be new. Where is the old? It is gone. You're a new creation. You're not a dressed up old creation. You're a new creation. Now let me read you some troubling quotes that are the theological, the intelligent side of this. 
both ditches. You got intelligent people on this side. Then they start with the Pharisees and then go up to modern day, just kind of Bible thumping, King James only type folks. Uh, but there are intelligence on this side as well. Let me read you a quote. It is clear that the New Testament does not impose repentance upon the unsaved as a condition of salvation. It is clear that the New Testament does not impose repentance upon the unsaved as a condition of salvation. That's on page 367, volume three of Systematic Theology, written by Lewis Berry Schaefer, who is the founding president of Dallas Theological Seminary. Here's another quote. There is nothing to support the view that perseverance in the faith is an inevitable outcome of true salvation. There's nothing to support the view that perseverance in the faith, sanctification, is an inevitable outcome of true salvation, meaning you could be truly saved and never persevere, never grow in one way. That's from page 83 of Zane Hodge's book, Gospel Under Siege. The one they helped translate. <coughs> they all, they're all professors. Nowhere, here's another one. Nowhere does the word of God guarantee that the believer's faith inevitably will endure. Nowhere. Undoubtedly, the Christian who has lost his or her faith may cease to name the name of Christ and may even cease to confess Christianity, but yet be saved. That's from Zane Hodges again, page 111, in Absolutely Free. Yeah. And then here's the last one. A believer may come to the place of not believing, and yet God will not disown him. That's from Charles Ryrie, page 141 of So Great Salvation. Now, sadly, all of those quotes are from people that taught at DTS. <coughs> that was the whole debate, if you were around for it or aware of it, in the late 80s and then into the 90s of the Lordship Salvation controversy between John MacArthur and then the faculty that was at Dallas Seminary going back and forth. And those are direct quotes. I have the books in there. I didn't steal them. from. I pulled them right out of the books that they're actually in. So th this, this side does have an academic established side. No, this is what is true. You can be saved and never be sanctified, ever. And what we're going to look at is the opposite of that. That sanctification is not optimal, not optional. There's a, a comfortably carnal person is an unbeliever. Here's what B.B. Warfield said. He said, there, there are not two kinds of Christians, meaning a carnal Christian and then like a active growing Christian. Although there are Christians at every conceivable stage of advancement towards the one good to which all are bound and at which all shall arrive. Did you, did you hear that? So there's not two kinds of, of Christians. So like the on the truth and then you're over here living in sin, but you're still saved. No, there's just lots of people on different spots on the same road. You got saved, but you died before you could progress even further. But or you got saved and then you made tons of progress by God's grace before you died. But there's not two kinds of Christian, the carnal kind and then the serious kind. And that's what they look at a lot of the verses in the scriptures where they decide they distinguish between salvation and discipleship. You can be a disciple. That's like next level. That's Green Beret Christianity. But you can also just be uh, an enlisted guy 
And that's also in the army and you'll win the war too. It's just, you're a second class Christian. You're going to get to the same place. It's just your seat's not going to be as nice. Yeah, you're going to end up, yeah, you're going to end up in the same thing, same plane, but you'd have more leg room if you would just, you know, cooperate a little more. <coughs> Making up a second kind of, of Christian, this carnal Christian idea. Those men, those men had a complete disregard to 1 John uh, 2.9. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, you know, so I grew up in that kind of world, and it's called the, if you want to look it up, ever the free grace movement. Mm. And, uh, and they say that 1 John is the hardest book of the Bible to interpret. And I grew up thinking that. And then I read it and I was like, nah, that's actually pretty simple. Mm-hmm. If you don't come to it with crazy ideas, you're just like, oh, that's what it says. It says what it says. That's where we've been going to Steve Lawson. He's been teaching 1 John. And so I know he went to DTS at that time with those men. And I asked him a question about that. And he was straightforward about it because uh, he's not like that. Uh, so here's some verses. Y'all can just write these references down. We won't look them up because we'll get into our content. But about sanctification being not optional. Hebrews 12, 14, which is strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So not optional. Matthew 10, 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then Hebrews 3, 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So you will not be glorified if you were never sanctified. All right. Now let's get into our confession. (coughs) All right. So the first line we're at, um, we're in paragraph three. It says this, in which war, so meaning... Remember the last line that we looked at in paragraph two, a continual and irreconcilable war. The flesh lusting against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. So then paragraph three picks up with, in which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail. Now we stop right there. Let's look at Romans seven twenty three. <coughs> seven Romans seven twenty three. So when you get there, let's read it. The law of sin. I'm seeing sin in myself, Paul says. So now here's where people on this side will say like, okay, so you say that we never sin? And we're like, no, no, no. We're not saying that we never sin. Nobody's saying that. No Bible-believing Christian can say that. Do Christians still sin? Yes. Okay, so let's, let's get some examples flowing. Do Christians still sin? Biblical examples. So either people that you can think of or texts that you can think of. Peter. And, uh, you know, they had to call him back to the leadership in the church because he was yeah. getting confused again about the whole Judaizers. And- right. He was adding works to the gospel. Yeah. In Galatians. This is after he denied Christ. Who else can you think of? Big sin as a Christian. David. David is the obvious one. Adultery and murder. Those are two obvious Ten Commandments. David and Bathsheba. So the place you can look at, 2 Samuel 12, 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. 
look at that. And was, but then you go, well, was David actually even saved? Well, look at Acts 13, 22. And when he had removed him, meaning Saul, he, meaning God, raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Written centuries later in the New Testament. Obviously, Christians can still sin. Another passage that you could look at would be 1 John 1, 7 through 10. We won't read it, but 1 John 1, 7 through 10 is an example of Christians still sinning and needing to sin. Now, not needing to sin, but needing to confess sin. What? Yeah, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Verse 24. Now, it says here that remaining corruption for a time may much prevail. So for a time, giving it a, an end point, but also a seasonal idea. Can you think of a biblical example of somebody seasonally sinning? Not like every season that comes around in the year, they do this sin, but like it seems like they're in a season of sin. Solomon? In what way? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And if you look at Ecclesiastes, which he probably wrote at the end of his life, he sees all of that yeah. as sin. He looks back on that and sees it as vanity and as emptiness and as worthless sinfulness. Right. Are you familiar with John Mark? Yeah. What, well, who's, who's John Mark in the book of Acts? Acts 15. He causes a big old problem. Yeah, between Paul and Barnabas, right, right. So it makes Paul hook up with, with Silas. So Barnabas' cousin, and Paul didn't want to bring him because he's abandoned them once before because he's untrustworthy, sinful in those ways. Barnabas wants to because this is boy. They split over it. But then what does Paul say at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4.11? He says, bring me John Mark. He's very useful to me. So John Mark, a season of sinfulness that was just a season for a may a time prevail, like the confession says. So repeated sins or proclivities. And like Paul Rasmussen brought up, you can just look at Peter. His proclivity is just denying Christ with whatever's kind of going around, denying the gospel. Whether it's Jesus to his face or these guys are really popular and I'm going to go ahead and say circumcision is necessary for salvation. All right. Well, let's keep moving through the, through the confession. Here's the next phrase. Yet, the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part does overcome. All right, let's look at Romans 6, 14. <coughs> Somebody gets there, let's read it. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So, what will sin do or not do? We'll have no dominion over you. No dominion. What, is, what does dominion mean? Dominance. Dominance. Ruling. Ruling. It also has master over you since you are not 
It says master over. It's not be master over you. So what, when you think of a master, what do you think of? Ownership. Ownership. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it can't control you. It can't determine what you will do. It is not the binding force. It will have no dominion over a Christian. Actually, all Christians will not be ruled by sin. It's a fact. A Christian cannot continue in unrepentant sin. So that means you cannot, the whole fire insurance idea of just acknowledge like mental assent. Okay, yes, Jesus is real. He's the son of God. He died for people's sins. And if you believe in him, I say I believe in him, then I get out of heaven. I get out of hell and I get into heaven. That that doesn't exist. An unrepentant but saved person. That doesn't exist. It's not a real, because you can't, sin will have no dominion over you. Christ's freedom is an actual freedom, not a potential freedom, an actual freedom. Let's look at John 8, 36. Somebody read that. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Can Jesus fail at anything that he does? No. no. So if he sets you free, and talking about the context of sin here, you will be free indeed. Not possibly. Not if you really want to and you really try. You will be free indeed. You will have no dominion. Oh, sin will have no dominion over you. You must be free from sin and you can't continue in sin. So pick it on first John. Let's go to first John three, six. First John three, six will give us a real easy passage to chew up and swallow. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. You read that, did you read that New American Standard? All right, somebody read it if you got ESV. The translation is a little more helpful for us sometimes in the ESV. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So let me explain to you just real quick why when Tim read the ESV, it said keeps on sinning. And when Barbie read the NASB, it says sins, period. So Greek has different verb tenses that English doesn't have direct parallels to. Every language has past tense and present tense and perfect tense. But then there's weird tenses in Greek. So one of them is called aorist tense. There's like a, a beginning and then a continual element to it. And then in that tense has different variations within it. So it makes some verbs difficult to translate. So it's true in the sense that sins, if you're listening to it in a certain way, that you would hear a continual aspect to it. But sometimes reading it in another translation, like the ESV in this case, keeps on sinning, you're like, oh, because if you're really down in the dumps, if you've really just, you know you've been living in sin and you know you've been doing wrong things, you're in that season we're talking about, and you pick up your NASB and you read that, you're like, then I'm not even saved because I have sinned a bunch lately. So one of the things that I tell, this is just as a side note, one of the things I tell people that are like, man, I just need help studying the Bible. What are some things I can do? Just get different translations. See, in English, we're the most blessed language group that there is with the Bible. Just have, and now it's so easy on your phone. I mean, you can have 
20 of them right there on your phone. But if you have an ESV, a New American Standard, a New King James, an NIV, and then even a King James, if you have those, then you'll gain understanding just by reading it over and over. And then maybe like the Christian Standard, CSB, throw that one in there. Uh, that will help bring light to a verse that looks particularly, because if you were reading it like that with no context, and you were thinking, you know, okay, well, I can't mean that no Christian ever sins because in chapter one of 1 John, it says that we do, and when we confess sins, we're forgiven. So it can't say that, I need help. A lot of times just reading it in a different translation will, will help you out as far as just understanding when it looks like it's a clear contradiction. So, no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. And that sounds pretty normal, right? No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Can, what? So, if someone's in a season that they're doing that, mm -hmm. and they die. Yeah. Yeah, so then th this is where our, our, the latent influence of Catholicism creeps in because they would say, oh, was it a mortal sin or a venial sin? I mean, what kind of sin are we talking about here? Because they got all these rankings for them. Uh, and that's why they would say, like, if you commit suicide, you're definitely going to hell because you, don't have, you couldn't confess that. And that's a mortal sin. It's murder, and you murdered yourself. So dying in that state doesn't have anything to do with the actual state of my soul, right? If David had died, as Nathan the prophet is coming to his throne to rebuke him, and Nathan, or David has a heart attack right there in the chair, doesn't change anything. I mean, it changes our Bible because we don't have Psalm 51, but, but it doesn't change his actual heart because that's what God says. He's, his heart is what I'm after. That's what I can see, and that's what he's done it's just, in, it's just invisible to us. It makes your funeral a lot harder to preach. Uh, and, and, it makes, and it gives your family no real hope. Like, did they, were they truly repentant? And that's why you can't really say one way or the other when somebody dies and their life seemed kind of sketchy, but I think that they were a Christian. So we just, I give hope beyond hope in that circumstance, pastorally, because I don't know. It's one of Jonathan Edwards' famous lines where he said, when I get to heaven, I'll be surprised at the people who aren't there that I thought would be there and the people who are there that I thought wouldn't be there and that I'm there at all. And I think that's a safe place for all of us to dwell. Um, but in that, but it, you know, dying in that state, we're, we're, it, God knows and he's in control of all of it because salvation is monergistic, not synergistic. It's really just for our loved ones and those that are behind yeah. They wouldn't have any sense of assurance. No, well, they're on their deathbed and they, they don't have any assurance. But lack of assurance doesn't mean lack of salvation. That you can have lots of people walk their whole lives. This is why, again, plug for Pilgrim's Progress. There's a guy at this, in the second book, his name is Mr. Ready to Halt, which means ready to limp. And he's pictured as always on crutches. And when he gets to the, the river, and the crutches meaning like he never has any assurance of his faith that he's always on crutches and he's, you know, he could be a lot stronger and walking a lot more discernedly down the path towards the celestial city, but he's not because he's on crutches. And, he, and the story goes like he could just put those down anytime. His legs work, he's fine, but he won't do it. He, think, he thinks he needs them. And then when he gets to the river, uh, at that, this, the, 
the second book has a lot of people at the river and all the different characters as they die, like they give a little bit of a speech. And his is, I'm leaving behind these crutches because I won't need them where I'm going. And I hope that everybody can see them and know that they don't need them here either. And as he goes across the river. So Mr. Ready to Halt is the person who is saved, but has no assurance. Oh, anyways, bonus plug again, once again, for Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, so yeah, so no one who abides in him keeps on sinning anymore that a born baby can continue being unborn. I mean, that's the lie. And if Jesus uses the picture of new birth, being born again, how can you, I've been born, but I'm unborn. I live unborn. You can't do that. If you're born, umbilical cords cut, you breathe with your own lungs, your eyes open up, and you're not in amniotic fluid anymore. This is real. You can't live unborn if you have been born. You, any more than old can be new, or darkness can remain present with light. You can have dark co corners, but if you can't. Have you ever thought about dark, how, the way dark and light works? Do you, do you have a, a dark equivalent to a flashlight? Like spreading darkness? Has there ever been so much darkness that light can't shine? No, light always wins. And where light is, darkness can't be. And that's the, that's the relationship that we have with, with, with what we have with Christ and sin. Like if Christ is here and he is light and in him we all walk in light, it's impossible to remain in that state. We can be inconsistent, but not motionless. All right, so <coughs> here's the... Uh, the last uh, chunk of the confession. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after a heavenly life in evangelical obedience, evangelical, just think uh, gospel obedience, to all the commands which Christ as head and king in his word has prescribed to them. All right, as the, so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after a heavenly life. Let's look at Ephesians 4, 15 through 16. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Thanks, Penny. All right, so what's the illustration there? What's the illustration Paul is choosing to use to describe Christians in Christ? Body. A body and what's he? The head. Okay. Now this is going to be a hard question. Who is in charge of the body? The body or the head? The head. Yeah, that was a, that was a tough one. All right. What do you call? What do you call a body that doesn't respond to the commands from the head? Dead. Dead. Paralyzed. Yeah, that's paralysis, right? Like the, 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 body, the brain is sending synapses, but the arms and the legs are not responding. They're n so what, what, what does that mean has happened then? There's what? The brain is not in charge. 
The brain's not, yeah, they're not, there's a disconnect. Something has been severed in the line of communication. Now, will we call that normal or abnormal? Abnormal. Abnormal. Paralysis is the opposite, is the outlier. What do you call a body that does not grow, but the head that does continue to grow? That would just be a mutant, wouldn't it? To have an adult-sized head and a baby-sized body? I mean, that would be, it would be a mutant, right? So we, it can't, you can't have anything like that. So the image, the image that the Bible chooses to use is just like, yeah, we get that. What would you, what, what do we say? Well, let's go through it like this. Parents, when you have your first baby, what are you so concerned about with her? Every doctor's appointment, what's coming up? Gain. Growth, yeah. gain, percentile. right? What percentile are they in? All those kinds of things, right? And then you're freaking out, right? Because they got to be in the 90th percentile. Otherwise, my kid is, you know, an imbecile or we got to get them in a whole body cast and then, you know, get, you know, vegetable oil on their brains and stuff. Whatever it is to soup them up, right? We're, we're paranoid about that. Are they, are they rolling over? Is she picking up her head? All those things. What do we call a kid who isn't growing, who isn't hitting those markers. It could be that they're just a little bit behind and then they rock it off and then become professional athletes. It could be that something's wrong. But either way, we should pay attention and it should catch our attention because this is not the way it should be. And that's why would it be any different with the Christian life? All right, let's go to the next, next verse. 2 Corinthians three eighteen. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay, all with unveiled face, so... God is anti-mask. Put it down. <laughs> right there. <laughs> COVID joke. You can only make those in 22. You can't make them in 20. Uh, we all with unveiled face. All right, but it says, it says we are being transformed. Not could be being transformed or may be being transformed. We are. That's happening to every real Christian. Every real Christian. It's an inevitable fact. And whose job is this? What does it say in verse, at the end of the verse? Where does it come from? The Spirit. The Spirit. All right. Can the Spirit of God fail at His job? No. I mean, that's what we're getting at here. Of course, we are participating, and of course, we can sin. We can fall on either side of that ditch, and we can pause in the middle of the road. But if he's the ultimate person in charge of this whole deal, then this has to happen. We will not be where we were last year. We may not be as far as we wanted to be, but we will not be where we were because the Spirit of God is transforming us. So, yeah. Synergistic. So ultimately, it is, it is the Spirit of God. Yeah. Right. So the synergism 
is really, it's, it's just talking about like the actual energy. Because, and it makes sense, right? Because if I'm dead as an unbeliever, then I can't put forth any energy, right? So it has to be monergistic. But even if I could put forth energy, could I save myself from my own sins? Of course not. So even, a, uh, even an Arminian who would say, well, you're not all the way dead. You're just almost dead. You're kind of dead. Even they would have to say that it's still going to have to be all the glory to God because they're not going to claim any glory for themselves. So then we, with synergism on sanctification, would say, yeah, I'm participating, but there's no way that I can take any of the glory from the Spirit of God. I won't get to the river and look back and go, man, I really hustled. Look how far ahead I am from all those people. I, I, I white knuckled it and woo, I've, been, I've got some freedom from it. And this is why when, when it comes to sin and dealing with sin, I, I tell people, you've got to stop talking like AA participants with your chips. It's been 36 months. This is my 36 month chip. This is my, now my five year chip. Because what happens? As soon as you do one thing, that becomes worthless. What is that chip? That chip is this. That chip is I'm measuring myself by myself. Now, I can't go here and be like, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to drink myself to death. But I, I don't live off the street because it's not, my, it's not me doing it. It's the Spirit of God doing it. The illustration I gave, this was a while back, uh, about how to understand the, how the synergism really works was my dad going to college. And my dad, he, they lived in Lubbock at the time, and my dad was going to Texas A&M. My, grand, my granddad told him, he said, you're going to pay for your school. And he was just like, yes, sir, because that's what you told my granddad. He was a tough Amarillo boy. And he said, okay, I'm going to help you out, but you're going to pay for your school. And so my, my dad would come home at the Christmas time, and he would work at the Christmas tree lot in the parking lot of Walmart all Christmas break. And then in the summertime, he would mow lawns for the parks department out at all the rest stops on the highway. And... It wasn't until later on that he realized he was actually given nothing to the full bill of college, but he was giving his whole effort. His whole self was engaged in that, but he had nothing really to contribute to the thing. It's like when you have your kids, they're going to help you carry something heavy. I want you to think that this, you're holding this weight because I want you to take this seriously. So, but there's no way that like if you trip and fall, I'm going to let this drop on you. I'm actually doing all the work, but I want you engaged fully. You're exerting your full body, but it's actually doing nothing. I'm doing all of the work. So it's synergistic in a sense that you're exerting energy, not, but not energy that brings about the result. The transformation is all the spirit of God. I have a question about... <coughs> yeah. The, I know that sanctification looks different for everybody. Right. Which means that if you were to see the graph, Right. Sometimes there are plateaus and then there are yeah. long, long ascents and, and maybe even gradual descending, whatever. But my, my concern would be for, let's say, a friend who constantly professes Christ, but then there's really no uh, obvious sanctification in the sense of they still might have a foul mouth. They're, the jokes are off color, mm -hmm. you know, and, and like when you engage them with that, you start, you try to you try to explain to them like, hey, we probably shouldn't engage in that as, as believers. Their response is, um, uh, you know, well, I just Christian freedom or 
yeah. or, or whatnot, which is basically an antinomian-like response to that. But, you know, it, it, how, how, how do I assess that? Because if you look at James, James does say that, that sanctification, essentially, the mm -hmm. works that you do are proving your faith, that you're justified in the eyes of those around you. And my concern for my friend, and, and it's not just one, I have several, that are showing no signs of sanctification, little to no works, yeah. um, is that their profession is meaningless. Right. But I also don't want to cast judgment and get above my pay grade and get outside my purview. But I, I, I mean, yeah. how should I feel about that? And then what is my, what should I do as a, a faithful believer and a faithful friend? Yeah. Right. So when you, they pull the freedom card, I always go to Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You said Galatians 5. Galatians 5.13. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in a statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we can see that there. Um, but you're right that the, the, uh, the overall graph of our Christian lives, it can look pretty sketchy, or you could have even a plateau and then a dip, and then a, but the, the general progression is always going to be upwards, even though it's going to be one ugly graph for all of us at the end of our lives. Well, you just zoom out, of course you're going to see Right, it. and you, I mean, yeah. this, you're seeing here, I mean, what's going on here, the plateau and then dips and then a big dip and you stayed at the bottom. So that, that's true for all of us, <coughs> but when it comes to confronting someone, one, we're never, we're never the curator of somebody else's salvation. But here's the one, the big problem about this. That what antinomianism does is that it hands out false assurance like candy. I actually used to be involved of working at a church like this. And then it dawned on me, like, what we're doing is we're telling everybody that they're a Christian. But 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourself as to whether or not you are in the faith. And then over here, it's like, if you ever examine yourself, that's the worst thing that you could do. Don't do that. You're fine. You're good. You're good. You're good. You're good. You're good. Maybe, maybe you're not. And the Spirit of God was provoking you to actually bring you to real salvation. But we were told you, you already were saved, so don't worry about that. Ignore that. Now, so this, this is, that's a, a real problem. But here's what I can never do. What I can never do is know somebody's heart, ever. I can know their actions, and that's what James is talking about in James chapter two. That's, that's all I can point to. But ultimately, it comes down to this, Christ-likeness. Do you love Christ at all? And Jesus says in John 14, 21, those who love me and keep my commandments, I will love them and disclose myself to them. And then John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? In Luke 6, 26. So you look at those things and you go, that, that's the real test because there's plenty of people who live real and consistent lives and you may be catching them right here. And they just, they hate it. And then they, they argued with you when you brought it up, but then they went home and they're just crying in their pillow because they feel terrible about it. 
You just pray that they eventually come back around and you'd be there with open arms. Brother, sister, come back in. Because when David does that, he breaks down weeping. Nathan doesn't go, good, you sorry loser. Now grovel all around the kingdom and do all this stuff. No, he says that you're forgiven because of your heart of repentance. What was the Luke reference again? Luke 6, 26. I'm pretty sure that's it. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? That's not it? No, what do you when all people uh, speak That was from the sermon on Sunday. Uh, it's also down, down further down, John 14. <coughs> no, it's not there. Uh, I'll have to look it up here in just a minute, James. Okay. But that's Luke, and it's single-digit Luke. It might be Luke 4. Um, yeah. So this, where we, we can tip either side to this, and what we need to know is, Where's the middle? How do we walk in the truth without sliding into antinomianism? Sin doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. You're all good. Don't worry about that. And how do we not slide into here to where we're making up rules? Well, I know it says we can't. Uh, I know it says we shouldn't do X, Y, or Z, but let's not do A, B, or C either to keep us from doing X, Y, or Z. I mean, the easiest one to point at is drinking. It says not get drunk. But if we just never drink, and then you're looking at people who do drink and saying, yeah, you're a sinner. Well, no, only if they're not drunk. That's, that's the path that we're called to take. And if you notice, every other religion that, uh, that has a high moral threshold, which is not really any Eastern religion, or not like far, far Eastern religions, what they do is they just shove you into an extreme. In Islam, if you wanna to go to heaven, you just be as extreme as you can. No balance, no nothing. Just be as extreme as you can, and that's your way in. Whereas Hinduism, it's the complete opposite. Just be as extreme over here as you can, and then that'll probably guarantee your way in. Christianity calls us to walk in grace and in truth, always. So here, before we run out of time, the last, the last verse, Second <coughs> Corinthians seven one. <coughs> Read it for us. bringing holiness to completion. So the confession said that phrase, evangelical obedience. Does it say that in the updated version? Gospel obedience. Gospel obedience? Okay, yeah, so gospel obedience. That's, that's what it means, gospel obedience. What is gospel obedience and how is it different than legalistic obedience? Because over here, there's not talking about obedience at all. That's irrelevant. But the confession is talking about gospel obedience. How is that different from legalistic obedience? Legalistic obedience strives for perfection um, inwardly. Mm -hmm. Like it's, uh, I am comparing myself to me. Yeah. I'm comparing myself to other people. I'm, I want to be as perfect as them or they need to be as perfect as me. Right, Whereas right. gospel obedience is comparing ourselves to Christ. Mm -hmm. Right. So you have the right standard. Right? It's not just, hey, look, I'm better than everybody else. It's like running around the track. Look, I'm faster than all them. Well, you're not, you're not faster than the clock. The clock is the standard, not them. Right? So, okay, yeah, that's one. What else? How is it different? What, what about like the, the heart or the motivation? 
How is it different in our motivation in gospel obedience versus legalistic obedience? Legalistic meaning you play a role and gospel is humbling yourself in thankfulness that God is the one. That, uh, right. Yeah. That, that's that you said thankfulness. Yeah. That's the difference is that legalistic obedience is all meritorious, meaning my merit is what matters. That's the AA chips. I did this. I did not drink for 36 months. I earned this. Gospel obedience is the opposite of that. It's, and the opposite of that is not this. The opposite of that is this in the middle. Gospel obedience is you did this, Jesus, and I'm obeying your commands out of gratitude, not out of merit, not out of trying to earn anything, but because I'm so thankful for what you've done for me. That when I was a wretched, dead sinner, that's when you died for me. That's when you chose me. That's when you loved me. So I'm obeying now out of obedience and out of gratitude, not out of trying to earn your love or, or trying to maintain my status. You maintain my status because you gave me status when I had no status. That's the difference. That, that's what we're after when it says, since we have, you see in verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, since we have these promises, promises meaning the gospel, the gospel is a promise. It's a covenant. Now let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. I should want to purge sin. I've been promised eternal life. I've been promised childhood in the family of God forever. So yeah, I want to purge out all the sin. And yes, I want to bring holiness to completion. But then the last thing is, before we close up, is we do that in the fear of God. What is the fear of God? An acknowledgement. Acknowledgement of what? Of who he is, not, not a like, hiding away kind of fear. It's a, mm. a recognition yeah. of feelings. Yeah, call recognition. Of, call it respect. Respect. Like electricity. Yeah. So yeah. We don't go we don't go around messing around and sticking our finger in the socket, however. Right. We're not afraid to go plug in a right. microwave. Right. That's good. That's a good example. Oh. Yeah. What? An awe. Right. Uh, does anybody have daughters? I know y'all do. Daughters that are into horses <laughs> or have ever been into horses. But when they're real little and they finally get up next to a real horse, mm-hmm. remember what that was like for them? And they're just like, whoa, these things are huge. And then when you, I, we used to work at a camp, Anna and I used to work at a camp, and there would always be those little girls that are eight years old, it's their first year at camp, and they are horse nuts. Like they brought posters for their cabin of horses, and they're going to ride horses, and they go down there, they got their pink boots on, they run down to the barn, and then they get there and they're like, these are huge. And then they get put up on the horse, and these are, I mean, they're, horse, they're camp horses. They're basically got one foot in the glue factory. Like these things are almost, they, de- like they are dead. They're, they're just walking dog food. They are. Uh, but, and they, but then they're sitting up on the horse waiting for the trail ride. And you know how horses like just wiggle a muscle without moving their legs? It's like it just looks like their whole skin shakes. And that little girl just, he didn't even move. And then when the foot comes up and the step, they're just, but then they realize this horse is not going to hurt me. But this power that I'm connected to now, 
There's an awe, there's a respect, there's a, a, an appreciation and acknowledgement for, for who you are. But not a, uh, the, the word theologians use is a servile fear. Servile, like, like, a, like, a, like a, a shadow slave, you know, waiting to get whipped. It's not that kind of fear. It's a, it's a reverence, an awe, respect, uh, an acknowledgement of who God is, which keeps us out of this ditch and out of that ditch. This ditch has total disregard for who he is. This ditch has too much regard for who I am. I want to be here, completely focused on who God is. And that's where we land. So I wanted to, I <coughs> found a good quote from Spurgeon about, about this stuff. The antinomianism, not brand new. I want to read it to us before we close. <laughs> yes. <coughs> he said this. It says, from my very soul, I detest everything that in the least savors of the antinomianism, which leads people to prate about being secure in Christ while they are living in sin. We cannot be saved by or for our good works. Neither can we be saved without good works. Christ never will save any of his people in their sins. He saves his people from their sins. If a man is not desiring to live a holy life in the sight of God with the help of the Holy Spirit, he is still in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And he says, but the idea of saving faith apart from good works is ridiculous. The saved man is not a perfect man, but his heart's desire is to become perfect. He is always panting after perfection. And the day will come when he will be perfected after the image of his once crucified and now glorified Savior in knowledge and true holiness. And he had some funny stories about people and won't read those, but wanted to read us a good old Spurge quote. <coughs> All right. Well, that's it. Let's pray. For the podcast, the verse is Luke 646. Luke 646 podcast, every people. Yes. I was close. I said Luke 626. You were really close. That's the neighborhood. I mean, partial credit, right? Yeah. Come on, man. We're not on the legalism side. We're in the middle. <laughs> All right, Paul Bird, will you pray for us, brother? over us, Father, as we go home tonight. Thank you for your inerrant, fallible word. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. All these things we ask in His name. Amen. Amen.